Hey, this is Mike Portnoy, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. metalheads and welcome back for yet another week of focus on metal and uh, as all things with uh, the weirdness of 2020 uh actually skyping with richie this week how you doing man not too bad about a, a mile and a half away from you but with the <laughs> modern technology we'll get it done oh yeah it's awesome huh so uh, anyways <laughs> uh you know you've come up with a lot of good stuff lately and uh you know this week is uh, talking to uh well, actually, an old Bay State boy, Steve Riley, all about the uh, brand new Renegades album with uh, with LA Guns, which is a pretty cool, uh, pretty cool interview, and and definitely uh, you can tell that Steve's a, a a Boston boy with the accent, that's for sure. I did not know he was from here. Oh, when really? I, started. No. <laughs> I figured you would have would have picked it up when you were talking to him because he's it's definitely no. that's a that's a Revere deal right there. Well, I did after a while, but. I'm not from here, so I there's all different accents over here. So sure. I, I don't get them. I don't <laughs> get them all. Um, but I yeah, it didn't take me too long to figure it out. But yeah, uh, yeah. and then he mentioned it as well. Um, when did you uh, get to know Steve first? What was it, Wasp? Oh yeah, yeah, actually, it was Wasp. Yeah, yeah. Okay, because it was the same with me. It was. Um, Trying to think was the last command record. I'd, um, I don't even know of any, any really of any of the bands he was in before Wasp. Yeah, that was really the one I think that he kind of like popped up was with that one, and, uh, and then you know, kind of everyone knew him after that. And then he's he's quite you know been uh, quite prolific in making his way around different bands around the LA area. That's for sure. What about um, New England bands? No, nothing, nothing note there. No, I don't. I don't ever remember him playing around here. I don't remember him ever on a like a bill that I was on around here or anything. So yeah, I just, I don't know. It's just it's kind of a weird scene here too. So, but I, I don't remember him in uh, anything here in the in the Bay State. Mm, maybe it was another one of these East Coast guys that you have to go west, my friend. <laughs> well, he made the right call, right? He did. He yeah. did. Um, have you heard the record? I just heard little bits of it. I really haven't had a chance to sit down and hear all of it. I uh, definitely wanted to, especially when you talk about, um, you know, the new singer and, and vocal range and all that. I was really curious to hear what he was bringing to the table. Mm. I I wouldn't count myself as... Um being the biggest LA Guns fan anyway. Hmm. Um, when they came out with the debut record, I bought it. I, I liked it. I didn't love it. Yeah. Um, I, and it was the same with Cocked and Loaded. I liked it. I didn't love it. Hollywood Vampires, again, I liked it. I didn't love it. And I don't really have, you know, a side here when it comes to Phil, Tracy, or Steve, or Kelly, or whoever else has been in the band. Um, I just judge them bands like that, that I'm not a, a massive fan of hmm. on the music. And I like the stuff Phil and Tracy are doing. Hmm. And I went to see them live and they, they were good. They were with, um, miraculously Michael Grant was with them. He okay. came out with an earlier this year, mm -hmm. Michael Grant and the assassins. And they put on a good show. And then, but in the middle of a Michael Grant decided to do a, a full cover of Prince's Purple Rain, which was, uh, I thought, completely needless. I'd rather hear him do L.A. Gun songs. But, yeah, that, that lineup's good. And But I'm not jumping up and down saying, you know, no Phil, no Tracy, no L.A. Guns. Mm. I'm, I'm not that big a fan to have that opinion. Um, I, I, just, I like this album that Steve and Kelly... I've done and I'm sure Steve is spending probably 90% of interviews just to find why he should be going out there as the name. I, I think he's, um, he's in for an uphill battle there. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think so. But especially where probably by the time that he actually gets to, to tour on that, 
you know, it's going to be, you know, like next year. So it's uh, not even being able to, to grab on, you know, even the controversy to help with the tour cycle is going to suck. Yeah. I, and then you wonder how many shows they're going to do. It's, yeah. It's, it's all this controversy with those guys about naming rights and who owns the name. Mm-hmm. Um, so by the time Steve even gets to go out, they might even be able to go out as LA Guns. You, you never know with these things. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, but like the, the album, the album's pretty decent as a standalone record. It's it's a good record. Um, but you see some some tweets that come out. I think Tracy had a tweet that Steve was diluting the brand, and I'm like, how can you dilute the, that brand, <laughs> LA Guns, anymore when they've had? They must have had at least fifty guys play with them. Yeah, they've had what four or five lead singers. They've had Phil, Jizzy. Um, they did an album with um, Ralph Staines, didn't they, from Steel Panther? Yeah, I mean, it's been, there's only like the one really identifiable, you know, lineup. And then after that, like you said, they've, they've, they've churned through tons of people. So, yeah, I, I, I don't agree with the dilution comment at all. I don't think you can dilute it anymore. I think this is actually good mm. for the brand that you have people talking about them again. Mm. Um, and Tr- Tracy has been and gone a few times. Yeah. Remember, he went on that metal show a few years ago and he announced his version of LA Guns with a female singer. I'm like, you know, how far more can you dilute the brand? <laughs> you know, really? You shouldn't be looking at yourself a little bit more. Yeah. But um, Steve's always come across as like pretty, you know, fairly business savvy. Um, he's always, He's been in the band probably a, a lot longer than continuously than. Uh, than some of the other guys who've yeah. been and gone. Yeah. Um, he's been in the band with Tracy when Phil was gone, I believe. And then, of course, he was in the band with Phil for a long time. Right. And then, of course, Phil bailed. Yeah. Um, a, a, lot, a lot of that is down to money. You know, it's a business. Yeah. You know, who do they want? They want the singer and they want the guitar player. So if they want Tracy and they want Phil... Who do you think Phil, Phil's going to go with? Steve right. Riley or Phil or, or oh, yeah, Tracy? He's going to go with Tracy, yeah. He's going to go with Tracy. And, and of course, Tracy has, you know, the cachet there as well that mm. he came up with, you know, he's part of the name of the band. Um, He's probably the, the highest profile guy in the band. Sure, yeah. He's got the, you know, the connection back to GNR and all that stuff. So, yeah, definitely, yeah. yeah. There's, there's all that. And... um. But I'm sure the other, the other two, like I'm sure Phil and Tracy aren't happy that Steve's gone ahead and done it. But uh, it's a good record. Yeah. You know, it's um, it's just a good heart, good rock and roll record, and I, I'm glad, I'm glad they did it, and I like it. Nice. And I want, I wanted to have Steve on to, uh, to help promote it. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I got him on, and that was it. So why don't we uh, run that, and then uh, afterwards uh, we have a bit of chat. Sure. Hello. Is that Steve? Yes, it is. Hey, Steve, it's Richie here for the interview. How are you doing? Hey, Rich. How you doing, brother? Good to talk to you. Yes. Where are you? On the West Coast? Yep. I'm in L.A. I'm in Hollywood. All right. You're not watching the World Series. <laughs> uh, I've been out here for a long time now, bro. Yeah, yeah. So normally I'd, I'd ask guitar players when I have them on, um, how many guitars they have in their house and all that stuff. But do you collect drums? Do I, do I connect drums? Co- collect them. Are you a collector? Oh, man, yeah. You know, obviously, I've been endorsed for so long. i got so many drum sets. I had to actually get rid of some of them. I've had so many of them. And, uh, you know, I've been with Ludwig and Zildjian for so long now. And uh, i got a ton of drum kits, yeah. I collect them, but I don't. You have any other artist drum kits? I, I just have my drums. I don't even have any other room to collect any other artist drum kits. Yeah, have you ever been able, when you've been out on tour with other bands, to sit in behind another drummer's kit and a drummer that you admire, just just to play it a little bit and see what it's like? I have a lot of times. I, in fact, every tour that I've done, I've gone up on the headliner's drum riser and. Uh, and sat behind their kit just to see what they're playing, how they're playing, how their drums are tuned, and maybe how they're set up too. And uh, 
I've checked out just about everybody's drum kit, man, that I've been on tour with. And, uh, and sometimes played them and sometimes just sat there and just checked it out because some drummers and some of their techs don't want anybody to really touch them. Yeah. But, uh, but I've, I've sat behind just about every kit on every tour, whether it's ACDC, Iron Maiden, Kiss, all of them. I've sat behind all of those drum kits and just checked them out. Hmm. What's the biggest kit you've sat behind? Like, did you ever sit behind a kit? Like, I think Nico McBrain's kit is pretty big, isn't it? Nico's is big from Iron Maiden, but I think the biggest kit was probably Eric's from uh, Kiss. I think Eric Carr's kit was the biggest kit that I sat behind and because uh, he had the big double kick and the, the, all the toms and stuff. So, I, you know, the, the, a bunch of rack toms and stuff. So I think that might have been the biggest kit that I had sat behind and checked out was Eric Carr's. Hmm. What's the worst drum-related injury you've ever had? And I ask all the drummers this question and I've gotten different answers. Uh, the worst drummer injury that I've had, I mean, you know, I I, I was doing a tour in uh, Japan, and we were out drinking one night, and and I took a bad fall. I, I went down hard, and I I really hyperextended my both wrists, but one was really, really bad, and we had shows to do the next night. And that was the worst injury that I really ever had to go through. I actually had to play the show and they got photos of it too. With one hand, I had my other hand was all wrapped and bundled up. I was, it was really banged up. And the other one was barely flexible, but it was my snare hand. So what I did was I played the whole show with my hi-hat going. My hi-hat foot always goes anyways. And I just played with one hand and I did the whole show with one hand and I had to just rest my other hand on my floor tom. And, uh, that was the worst injury that I have ever had to go through. And then obviously, you know, playing long, long tours, you, 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 you get banged up. I, the drummer is like a, a athlete. Hmm. You get banged. You get, you really get banged up. And you, 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 you know, your wrists, your shoulders, your knees, your back. And so, you know, you have to like play through it. And I don't think a lot of people realize that you have to play through those. And our drama has to play through a lot of those injuries. And uh, I believe a lot of, I, you know, a good friend of mine, Frankie Pinelli, who just passed away. I just found out that he played through the last 10 years of his life with the Quiet Riot with a totally pulled out shoulder. And, you know, he never told me, he never told anybody. And I don't think we tell anybody really, except for maybe your wife or your girlfriend, they're the ones who know, but you just push through it. And with the drama, you really do, uh, on long tours especially, you really do get banged up and uh, your wrists and your fingers and everything, they, they, they really start to, to ache and hurt and you just play through it and it's it's a funny thing too bro because when you get on stage you could be hurting all the way up to the show but when you get on stage it's a funny thing because it's almost like that the injury goes away if you don't you're not thinking about it you're not dwelling on it you're just dwelling on playing the drums and pushing through and uh Right after the show, you're back to hurt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Steve, when did this band go from playing shows? Did a light go off in your head saying, we might actually have something here that we can write songs and actually make a record? Was was there one show you did or one com- was there a conversation you had with the guys where they all said they were all for it? Can, can you remember? Yeah, you know, because, I mean, what we did here was Kelly Nichols rejoined the band. So when he rejoined the band and we got Kurt Froelich to sing and Spotty Griffin on guitar, what we decided to do was we M3, the big festival in in, uh, Maryland, they asked us to come and play and do a set. And so what we did was uh, we did a couple days of rehearsal and we said, let's just go and have fun and play the show, see how it goes. And uh, the show went over so well. 
the band show so well that from that show in 2019, we started to, uh, things snowballed really quick, bro. And we, we got new big management. They're a huge management company out here in LA. And they were primary, prime wave, primary wave. And, uh, they, uh, they, they wanted to sign us to a management deal. We went with them. They got us a deal with Golden Robot Records. And we, things snowballed. It went from May to December where we were done with the album. And so it went from one show at M3 to doing this album. And, uh, the band shelled so well that we, we, we were able to go right in and do this album, Renegades. And so, uh, it was something really special too, because it's very organic and, the chemistry between the guys, we knew we had something really, really good going. And so, uh, it was a weird way of doing the album too, because we got Kelly Nichols in New York. I'm in LA, Scotty Griffin's in Vegas and Kurtz in Florida. So we used the internet for a couple of months to exchange ideas over the summer of 2019. And it went to 30 songs and whittled them down to 10. And, uh, we did a two-day pre-production. I had the guys fly out of the L.A. because I, I produced the album, too, Renegade. So I put the whole thing together. I had the guys fly out here. We did a couple of days of pre-production and went in and recorded it and mixed it in two weeks. A real old-school way of doing it, like Sabbath used to do it, like in the old days. Just go in and capture what you're doing. It's a very live feeling. And... um we just knew we had something special too with the songwriting and the band, everybody being songwriters. And I could tell you that the M3 show was the catalyst. If that didn't go over as well as it did, I don't know really how the year would have played out, but that show went over so good and the fans loved it. So it was like a real snowball effect through all of 2019. And um, we were lucky. We got it done by the end of 2019 before this pandemic set in mm. where did you find kurt kurt was we lucked out because we were ready to audition a bunch of people if that was necessary but we got a call i got a call from a friend in las vegas who said um you have to check this guy out and he said just go on the internet and check him out he was with a number of bands a number of cover bands a number of original bands and he's that it, like many other musicians that are so good, but they slip through the cracks and they really don't get a chance to do something really good, you know, worthwhile. They're just great musicians, but it just didn't happen for them for some reason or another. We went on the internet and checked him out and I actually checked him out singing a Bowie song, uh, Ashes to Ashes that was on the internet. And I was like, oh man, cause I'm a big Bowie fan. And, uh, I, he, he nailed it. It was unbelievable. So we didn't even have to audition anybody. He was the very first guy Kelly and I checked out and we were like, Kurt, you can do this. And he was a big LA Guns fan too. So he knew the old material and he just brought in a lot of great material for Renegades too. Hmm. Now, you weren't obviously looking for a guy that sounded like Phil because Kurt has many different facets to his voice that that makes him sound different to Phil. Yes, yes. You know what? I, the thing with the Kurt is he is a, he's like a chameleon too with his voice. He has a lot of different facets, like you said. But the fact of it is, is that he respects LA Guns so much and Phil that you know he was able to pull off the old material which is very important. You know, when you're a band that's been around as long as us, you, you, that three quarters of our set has got to be old material that the fans want to hear. Huh. And then that last quarter of material, you're able to sprinkle in some stuff. But Phil, when we heard Kurt, we knew that he was able to sing the old material really, really well. He respected Phil and the way Phil had approached those songs. And so he wanted to stay true to those songs. And when we heard him sing the old material, we knew this guy was just a gem. We knew he was somebody that really should have had a break a lot earlier in his career. But um, 
he he's somebody that we're really happy with and uh he, uh he what he did on renegades was really special i think he did a great job yeah he did um did it surprise you that kelly came back because i think he was he had a career outside of the music business there for a while yes he did and you know what we stayed best friends Obviously, we're battery mates to be in the rhythm section hmm. for the, the for the classic band, and uh, we have always been best friends and loved playing with each other. And when he decided to leave, like in '95, '96, right in there, he, he it was a good break. It wasn't a bad break at all, and we stayed best friends. He pursued some art and some other work and uh, had fun doing it. He had a daughter and wanted to be with her when bringing her up. And so when uh, the opportunity came around, I called him and I said, Hey, Kel, you, you want to do this, man? And he was like, Riley, what took you so long to call me? <laughs> and so I, I said, Hey, Kel, come on, let's do it, baby. And then, so we, you know, I'm just so happy to be back with him. He's thrilled to be back. He brought in... You know, he brought in so much material, too, on this album. The first three singles were songs that he brought in, and we finished them in the studio, but Crawl, Well Oil Machine, and Renegades, those are three of Kelly's songs. Ballad of Jane. I don't know if everybody knows that, but Kelly wrote Ballad of Jane. And uh, he's such a prolific songwriter and he's got such a great eye for art. So any artwork that you see on our CDs and our LPs, t shirts, patches, and everything, that's Kelly. Kelly's done every, all of that artwork. So having him back, having my best friend back, my bass player back who plays that rhythm with me and knows how to play with me, it's a thrill, man, having Kelly back. I'm really happy about that. Yes. Steve, were there any rules that you laid down in the beginning regarding the direction of the album? Or did you just say, look, bring in the songs and we're just going to pick the best songs. We don't really care what style they're written in. Yeah, you know, because what we did, though, is... uh, I think I like it from the very beginning in the 80s. We were one of the bands that always had kind of an eclectic mix of material on our album. It moved around really in a different way. We didn't write one hard rock song after another hard rock song. We kind of moved it around, and we always had material on our album. So when we started working on Renegades, we had a bunch of different styles of songs and they were all true LA gun style but it, they moved around and there wasn't something where we said no that that doesn't fit we just really built it down to 10 of the best songs that we thought would fit on this guy but we have such a wealth of material because we have four songwriters in the band and uh everybody's been sitting on material for years and uh and so we have like uh, you know, we had like a really democratic way of putting these songs and picking them out together and agreeing that yeah we should go with these ten songs even though something like wood 
on the album. It doesn't sound like Crawl. It, it, and that's always been a style of LA Guns. We've always been like that and said, hey, this could move around nicely and not have to be one one thread of hard rock through the entire album. We could do different styles within the album. And I think that's been like that on Compton Loaded and Hollywood Vampires. We've had all kinds of different styles of music on our albums. Mm. I'm glad you brought up Wood because that's probably my favorite track on it. Um, can you tell me a little bit about who wrote that one? That's Kurt. That's Kurt Fulick. He brought that in. He had been sitting on that song for years now. He wrote that and uh, he had been looking for a record deal for a long time, you know, and I couldn't understand why. Well, it's it's a lot of musicians like that. I know so many great musicians in so many different towns that just couldn't get the ball rolling for one reason or another. Something happened with management or with the band or something, and he bought in wood. And uh, I mean, when I heard wood, we finished it in the studio and and added our own little touches to it. But he brought in that song, and uh, it just blew me away. When I heard that song, I was like, wow, this is a great piece of material. And um, he also brought in the fourth single that we're going to release, too, All That You Are, in Witchcraft, and in uh, Why Say Why. He just He's a great, great songwriter that slipped through the cracks, and we were able to land this guy in the band. And... Uh, that the song "Wood" is just really, really impressive to me too. It's um, it's very Beatles sounding. Oh man, it's so good, and uh, he his 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 whole approach to it too, of how he wrote it, was just impressive. And I was like, Kurt, this thing is is fantastic. And so, producing that too, I had such a fun doing it too producing that song because we added like a little bit of keyboard in there and and just layers of vocals it was just a fun song to work on and just very impressive songwriting on his part Hmm. now steve you said you flew the band out to la to record the record there like in this day and age the way you can make records why is it so important for you to get the guys in the same room to do it oh man after doing the two months of pre-production over the internet it was just uh and what i had to do was after we did that i had the guys fly out here and we sat down in a pre-production studio out here in north hollywood and we were just dialed in it was a really really like an organic experience because we hadn't played the songs together and we only did a two-day pre-production. So when we sat down the first day to go through the 10 songs that we had chosen, it was, we knew it right away. We knew that we were onto something really, really good. It just dialed right in. And like I said, we did a two-day pre-production, seven-day recording. The guys flew home, and me and the engineer mixed it and mastered it. And in about another week. So it was like a two and a half week old school thing. And I, I believe we captured some really raw emotion on there too. We didn't overthink it when we were very well prepared for it too. And uh, it was a real, real gas getting everybody in the studio finally to play the songs after exchanging the ideas for a couple months on mm. the internet, you know? I'm sure, I'm sure. Now, L.A. Guns is a two-guitar band, so what are you going to do when you actually get out on the road and start playing? Are you going to get another guitarist? Oh, you know what? No, Kurt plays guitar. Ah. So Kurt is, Kurt's the rhythm guitar player. Nice. So Kurt played, yeah, he plays guitar throughout the album. Scotty Griffin and him did, they shared the rhythms and uh, both played rhythm parts. And uh, Kurt played throughout the whole album. And uh, Scotty did all the lead solos on it, Scotty Griffin. But um, Kurt is a well-rounded musician. He plays a little keys. Scotty plays a little keys, too. So when we play live, we've got the two guitars. We've got Kurt and Scotty playing guitars. So it sounds totally full. Okay, nice, nice. I, I just got a couple of questions, Steve, before I leave you go. 
Um, I've listened to you in other interviews over the years, and you always come across as one of the guys that's savvy about the business side of the music, that you got into it very early on. Um, was that by default that none of the other band members wanted to get involved in it, or were you genuinely curious about how the business side of the music ran? Well, you know, I, I you know, I'm from Boston, and I grew up in Revere, and uh, I uh, I started playing drums when I was like five or six years old, and uh, so I've been playing, <laughs> I, I'm going to be 65 in January. So I've been playing drums for like almost 60 years. It sounds silly, <laughs> but so I've been playing. I've been playing drums my whole life, and uh, it, I, I, I just it's something that is something you know. I, I, I really what I miss today right now, bro, is the fact of there's a new generation of of kids that really don't know about instruments and don't know about wanting to master an instrument, wanting to master a guitar or master drums or become a really good vocalist and work on it really, really hard. I think that's that's the real secret of being a, a, a musician is wanting to master your instrument. And I, I've, I've had so many idols that I've listened to and I've been playing for so long and I started recording in 75 you know, I did an album, Pod Hundred in 75, he produced it. And uh, it's just always wanting to get better on an instrument. And I think that's what's missing nowadays, too, because you can play some stuff on a computer now. You can just program stuff. And I, I, I think it's a, a, a real shame, too, because the, the, all the bands in the 80s that came out of L.A., we all really, really wanted to master our instruments. We wanted to be really, really good at what we were doing. And uh, I, I think that, you know, I wish that this generation could feel that and want to do that. And so, you know, I mean, the, the, I've been fortunate to work with really, really great musicians, too. The guys in Kiel, the guys in Steppenwolf, the guys in Wasp and L.A. Guns. They were all guys that really, really wanted to be good on their instruments to really, really know how to dial in on how to write a song, too. So, you know, I mean, uh, that's really what it starts with me, is that I'm a drummer. I love drums. I love watching other drummers, listening to other drummers. And uh, I just, uh, you know, fell in love with the instrument and never stopped playing since really, really young. Mm-hmm. Um, final question, Steve, before I leave you go. Um, today is the anniversary of the Wasp album inside the Electric Circus, but me being from Ireland, the first date of that tour was in Dublin on the 27th of October in 86. Um, I'm just wondering, do you have any, any memories of that show or even that tour that stands out for you? Absolutely, brother. And I can't believe it's a today's the anniversary of that. That's amazing. Yeah. No, I totally have great memories of that starting off in Ireland. And we had a blast playing Ireland, man. The rock fans there are just tremendous. And uh, obviously, me being Irish, Riley, I, I couldn't, I, I, every time I would go to Ireland, I would just be on my toes and want to play the best I can. And uh, playing Dublin was a gas, man. And Wasp, we had uh, just uh, so much fun playing there. And on that whole tour, that whole tour was a lot of fun doing. But um, yeah, Dublin, I not only played there with Wasp, I played there with LA Guns a bunch of times too. It's just a gas playing there, man. The rock fans in Ireland are just great. Yeah, and the pubs are good too, Steve. Ah, the pubs are amazing as well. The food is amazing, too. Everything about Ireland. I wish I could live there, man, you know? And I I just, uh, anytime I would go to Ireland, it it would just be, I guess, we would have the best time. And uh, like you said, go popping around and do a great, great show with some great fans right over there. And it's a thing for me going over there. Yeah. Oh, speaking of Wasp, um, when is the last time you spoke to Blackie Lawless? 
The last time was LA Guns opened up for Wasp, and I believe it was in like maybe 2005. It was the first time I had seen Blackie in years, and it wasn't because we we, we were not liking each other or we didn't want to speak with each other. It was pretty much because he was working and I was working all the time. So when we saw each other, before the show, I went into the dressing room, and we hugged, and we just knew that we had done something really special together with Wasp. The original Wasp band had stayed together with me, Chris, Randy, and, and Blackie. I, I really, really liked playing in that band. I thought it was a special band. We not only looked good and had theatricals, we sounded really good, too. And uh, it was great seeing Black. And, you know, I, I, had, I talked to Chris a bunch since I had played with him. And I talked to Randy a bunch, too. But Blackie, I didn't get to talk to him that much. Like I said, he was busy and I was busy, but it was great seeing him. And um, it, it, it was like a special thing when we finally got together and we played a show together, me with LA Guns and with Wasp. Hmm. Well, well, Steve, give out all the social media sites where people can get in touch with the band and, and pick up the new record. Yes. Anybody that wants to order this new record or find out how to put we've got a bunch of great bundles put together with records, shirts, and patches, and everything. And uh, they can go to laguns.net or they can go to goldenrobotrecords.com and they can find out at laguns.net, you can find out everything about ordering the, the new LP Renegades, and uh, it comes out November 13th. And you can also find out about all the tour dates that have been moved from 2020 to 2021. And uh, it's just a bunch of fun stuff up there, too. So LAGuns.net is the place to go to check out anything with LA Guns. All right, Steve. Well, if you get up to Boston area, I'll hit you up and uh, hopefully I can get back and say hello to you. Uh, please do, mate. And I tell you what, uh, thanks for the support, bro. And uh, we're really hoping that we land in Boston this year. And uh you just keep your fingers crossed. It's been a crazy year, hasn't it? It's been, it's been nuts. <laughs> Insane. Enough of this. Is I right? we got to get back to normal. I know. I know. Well, Steve, I'm going to leave you go. I'm sure you've got other interviews. Thank you so much, brother. And listen, be safe out there. And I hope to see you when we get into Boston. Make sure you come by and see me if we're playing. Come backstage and let me know you're there. I will, Steve. Take care of yourself. Okay. Thanks again. You too. Bye. Bye. All right, there you go. There's Richie's chat with uh, Steve Riley of LA Guns, all about their brand new one, Renegades. I think that came out, what, the 13th? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So uh, kind of changing it up a little bit this week. Usually we've got a lot of chat in the front, an interview in the back. And this time we've got the, the chat in the back as uh, we just kind of wanted to talk a little bit about next week's guest, which, again, you know, Last week, when I talked about uh, what was coming up, it, you know, I said, hey, things might change, things you never know. But, of course, things change. So uh, next week is uh, a great interview that Richie did with uh, the one and only Dave Manichetti of y and I'm super psyched about the interview, super psyched to have uh, someone like Dave on the show because, well, I mean, y and you know, meant so much to so many people. Must have been been awesome for you to to interview Dave as well because I know they've been a long time favorite of yours. Um, definitely. Um, you've never interviewed Dave, have you? No, no. Um, yeah, I hit up. I hit up uh, management. His mm. wife manages. Yeah, Jill. Yeah, Jill. And um, I just asked. I said, "Listen, the ten record is uh, thirty years old. Mm. Any chance I could do an interview with Dave?" And talk about it, and she scheduled it, and I, I originally only had half an hour, yeah. and we kept going for a little bit longer, and Dave was fine about doing it. Yeah, I mean, he's great. He's really personable, and I mean, every every interview you see with him, too, he just, he remembers a lot, and uh, he just comes across really well, very well-spoken. Yeah, I, I think that's a record that he doesn't get asked about a lot, the 10 no, one. it kind of got buried. Yeah, um... Well, my history with Y&T, yours is probably further back than me, but when we're, when we're on the subject of Wasp again, mm. uh, when, pe- when people used to tape records for me, you'd have like a C90 cassette tape. Yep. And this will tell you now, I can still actually remember this. you get one on each side and maybe an extra song or two. Yep. Exactly. So <laughs> he, he, 
So I think he either taped the, the Wasp debut record or it was The Last Command, and it was like 37, 38 minutes. So my friend had seven or eight minutes to fill up. Um, the ones, One of the songs he put on it was the title track, The Contagious, mm-hmm. Y&T, that just came out. And I'd never... I'd never heard of the band, never heard them. Oh, yeah. So you came in really, really uh, late in there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 80, 87, mm. 86, 87. And I just remember meeting my friend saying, what, what, who are that band? I need to hear more of that band. So then I went Contagious. And then I think the next record I got was Black Tiger. Um, and I, I just ended up falling in love with the band, like big time. I just thought that. Dave was a he was a brilliant singer, just great hard rock songs, great guitar playing, and another one of these bands that, for many people, the, the labels ruined them. They should have let the, if they had to let the band be the band, uh, they probably could have been bigger. But they decided, you know, no, we'll get the outside songwriters in. We'll mm-hmm. try and glam them up a little bit and gloss them up. Um, we'll get Kevin Beamish in, who done tried to do the same with Saxon, I think. On uh, it, it always reminds me whenever I hear that name, I just think about oh, he screwed up the Saxon album, but he did pretty good on that one. On uh, you know what he did yeah. for Y and T, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I'm a big fan of Contagious, but hmm. if you look at the album before that, Down for the Count, that's Kevin Beamish as well, and that right. that's got its, the keyboards on it. It's got one or two cover songs on it. I think it's got. Um, your mama don't dance, right? And, uh, yeah, but that one, that one too. The uh, that part too with down for the count was um, they didn't have enough time to really write that either. So it was kind of like, all right, we'll we'll grab a couple other kind of BS things and throw it on there. They really, you know what I mean? They were like super popular. They were really riding that wave, and and just a you know stupid label decision like we want an album now. Yeah, you and know? of course, the less said about the picture on the back of that album cover, the better. <laughs> And if anything, Fashion. if you want to talk about dilution of a brand, that album is the dilution of, of, of the brand of Y&T for that short span of time because it, it really didn't do them any favors. All you got to do is look at the records that came before. Like mm. your Black Tiger, Mean Streak. And I know In Rock We Trust has uh, a couple of more commercial songs on it. Sure. But within the, space, within the space of two or three years, they'd gone from Black Tiger to Down for the Count. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know the, the label pushed them, and it was MTV and all that. But the dilution of the sound was, you know, pretty drastic over that short period of time. Sure, yeah, and and you know that's it. Also, there was that whole thing where they had the huge following, you know, back in in the, in the UK, and it was all because of the more you know harder rock sounds of of albums like Earthshaker and Black Tiger, and you know, and and. Uh, then you kind of you know you like you said you you know that that wave to make it meet the American market and um, you know they when they start coming up with you know like Summertime Girls which was you know originally kind of the extra track on the live album and all that you really did see kind of a shift in uh, in what they were doing and then you know now you see some of the the albums now with uh, some of that kind of the earlier songwriting stuff kind of comes back a little bit on albums like Face Maker the Face Maker Face Melter things like that. Where you know some of that comes back a bit, although this you know without having Joey and um, you know without having Phil and, and, and stuff, you kind of lose a little bit of it. But uh, you know, I think I think Dave still has has a pretty uh, pretty good songwriting capabilities in him. Oh, he definitely has, and they released a couple of albums in the nineties. Mm. No, no, nobody really knew about um, Musically Incorrect was the first one. Yep, and. Um, Oh God! What was it? Endangered Species was the other one, yeah. and and you can actually get that as a dual album too, called Incorrect yeah. Species, with both of them on it. Yeah, and they really stripped back their yeah. sound. Yeah, and that was all without. They didn't have a label then either, so they're doing it and just you know they. I think they were releasing it originally. I think those two were for Japan originally, just because they didn't have a label and they didn't really have a U.S. market, and but they did have demand from uh, from like you know other areas, so they just did them. Yeah, I was able to get Musically Incorrect. Mm. Um, it was on Music for Nations in England. Ah, okay. And Endangered Species might be the same, but they definitely did come out. I remember seeing in Tower Records, they had the, the Japanese version of, um, of Musically Incorrect, and it was a ridiculous <laughs> amount of money. <laughs> I'm going to wait a couple of weeks and get and get the domestic version. Yeah. But 
We're on the subject of labels with that band. I can't think of another hard rock band that A&M Records broke. Can you? No, not really. Okay, I know we're going to get emails and we're going to get posts and all that stuff. And, you know, hey, leave it to everybody else in the world to remember every artist and every damn label. But, yes, Soundgarden broke by A&M Records. And also uh, our buddies in Keel, another band on A&M Records. But by and large, you know, with the exception of classic rock guys like Frampton and stuff, uh, A&M was still not a hard rock or metal label. And, and, and the thing, too, is that like A&M Records was never really, they were never really a rock label to begin with. You know what I mean? With, with uh, I mean, Herb Alpert with, you know, he was more of, uh, you know, some kind of more adult contemporary and stuff like that. Great musician and stuff, but, uh, you know, never... Never had it like that. But then also, I think, I think Y&T were the only band that, that Jerry Moss actually signed because he was never the guy that would go out and do bands. He was the money guy. Mm. And I, I think A&M was the police label. Oh, I'd have to check. But yeah, but I wouldn't call it, they're not a hard rock band, but... Well, wasn't the, I thought the police were on an island. Were they on island? I think they were on island. You might be right, but... Nope, I am wrong on this one. Richie's correct. Police were, in fact, on A&M Records. I honestly can't think of another rock band on A&M Records. Mm. And, I, and I've and i listened to a lot of albums. <laughs> I kind of think it stand out to me. Yeah. But, of course, then they go to Geffen. Yep. And, um, you know, they kind of dropped the ball on them there as well. They promised them the sun, the moon, and the stars, and... Uh, and it just doesn't happen. No, and and I think the thing too is that they got, uh, you know, they got just sucked under, right? Because you had all these other kind of new bands coming up, and they got all the attention from Geffen, and you got this this other band that I think they would have continued to do well if Geffen would have just put a little bit more oomph behind what they were doing with them. But instead, they just kind of ignored them. I think they had a lot of problems with people in the office and not wanting to promote. Oh, gee, another song by these guys and stuff, and. Uh, yeah, I think they just really, really screwed them on on that whole deal. How much do you think it hurt them um, that they were an older band, that they came out in the 70s and they weren't young like a lot of the bands were that came out in the mid to late 80s? I think, though, that this, I don't think that that was really an issue because they never really came off that way. And I think they had a lot of respect for, you know, from all the other bands around them as well. And, um, you know, just they... They didn't act like, um, let's say, like a Sticks, also by coincidence on A&M Records or a Toto or something like that, not to deride any of those bands, but they didn't come off as that. Um, maybe they didn't really want to you know, do videos that much and stuff, and the first couple ones, they were really stiff at it, uh, but they were still a band that could go out and do an incredible show, and they could keep up with the times, and uh, like I said, the, the songwriting kept up with it as well, and the energy, so I don't think that that really hurt them from a fan perspective i think it what hurt them was the perspective of the jaded people at the label mm-hmm. i'll tell you one thing they definitely had an influence on and we've spoken to enough of the guys over the years is um a lot of the trash guys that came out of the bay area mm. um they Big were fans. all huge oh, massive fans yeah. of y&t now you mightn't hear it directly in their music but that band were a huge influence on them mm-hmm yeah, I mean, it was. I mean, you bring it out with, um, you know, right at the beginning of uh, of Bob's latest one here. You know, the Godfathers of Bay Area music. That uh, you know, there's a whole big talk about about Y&T and influence and all that. And uh, yeah, they definitely call that out, and they, they were huge in in uh, in that scene. Hmm. I think it also hmm. showed a lot of those bands in that area too. That yeah, you could go down if you did it right. You could go down to L.A. You could get a following. You could come back. You could you could do all the host of things that were available. So I think that, yeah, they had a definite huge influence on that whole scene. Mm. One of the things that that's amazing about a band like Y&T and, and they've kind of followed the same path that a lot of other bands that were a little bit bigger in the U S than they were in Europe since the melodic rock scene resurfaced in say the early to mid two thousands. Y&T, well not this year, of course, but Y&T normally spend between four to six weeks a year just touring Europe. Mm. They've done it more or less every year for the last, I'd say, 10 or 15 years. And it was the first time I got to saw them. Uh, saw them. See them was uh, 
was um, on when Face Melter just came out, and of course Phil was uh, Phil was still alive. Mm-hmm. And it was um, so you got to see him was, on his last tour. Yeah, oh, and cool. it was Mike. It was Mike on drums, and it was um, what's the guitar player? Brad? No, not Brad. Mike and I can't think of his name now. <laughs> he's still he's still with the band. Oh yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, and then was, the follow John was with them. John Nyman. John Nyman, that's yeah, it. Because Brad was who came in after to take over for Phil. Yeah, it threw me off for a minute. Yeah. Yeah. So John Nyman was with the band, and then the following year they came back again, and Phil was sick, mm. and he was he was dying really when when Dave was over, and Dave was talking a little bit about him, and you know having a kind of a laugh and a joke, and then wasn't too long after that then that, that Phil passed away. But yeah, they've been coming over every single year. Um, and I don't know if they play Ireland every year, but most of the years they do get in an Irish show and they play in England and, you know, Germany, they, they, they play all over. And it's been, it's been, it's been constant for them. It's literally September, October, every year, you can guarantee that Y&T are in Europe somewhere. And they've just seemed to have a following there, and they've gone over, and it's grown for them. Um, I know friends of mine years ago, when Coverdale got back with um, Doug Aldridge in the early 2000s, um, there was a show in Birmingham in England, and I didn't go. It was Whitesnake, it was Gary Moore, and Y&T opened. Wow. Yeah, and I couldn't go. (laughs) (laughs) Again, another show that I couldn't go to. And um, it wasn't too long after that then. I think that Gary Moore passed away and, you know, I never got to see Gary. But, uh, you know, and then with Y&T now, Dave's the only one from the classic lineup that's still alive. Yeah, 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 I know, it's a shame. Um, and he he played a show about over a year ago, I think, in the Tupelo. And he played for two and a half hours and there was no no solos, no break. Yeah. And he was fantastic for two and a half hours. Yeah, didn't, that, was guys, a, that was a double a double night setup too, wasn't it? Usually when they do the Tupelo, don't they usually do back to back nights now? Um, did they do two nights? I thought they did two. I don't nights. know. If I think they might have done two, but mm. he, he, yeah, I think I went to the first one. Right. But he did a two and a half hour show. Yeah. I think they did twenty five songs, and they did at least one song off every single record. Yeah, well, I mean, they got they um, definitely got a lot of material to to cover, you know. And he came out afterwards and, and met everybody. Mm. And I got to meet him. I got he got to sign. I got my ten album signed nice. and my Contagious album signed, and and I got a photograph. And then I was out of there. So mm. I remember going there. The show started at seven thirty, and the show was over at ten. And I was home at ten thirty. And I a two and a half hour show. I'd met Dave, talked to him for a minute, got my stuff signed, and I was home and all the way ten thirty. Wow. Where would you get that? <laughs> no, I know, I know. So you know, we talk about all the material. So I'll, I'll throw it out to you. What do you think? What's your, what's your uh, your top album by the band? Um, sentimental reasons. It's contagious. Ah, okay. Um, it's it's one that n- nobody is probably going to pick <laughs> because it's, uh, if I was to, if someone was to say right, take this, take that out of it, and just pick what do you think is the best album, top to bottom. Song songwriting wise, it's probably Black Tiger. Hmm. But um, I'm just a massive fan of Contagious. I always have been. I think every song on that is brilliant. Nice. Yeah. Um, even the even the lesser known tracks. There's the, the song that finishes side one on that "Fight for Your Life" is amazing. Um, I've seen him play Contagious. I've seen him play Armed and Dangerous off that off Contagious and Eyes of a Stranger. Eyes of a Stranger is a fantastic song as well. But uh, I, I, there's just something about that record that I can still put it on and listen to the whole thing hmm. and not skip any tr- any songs. But Black Tiger is an amazing record as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, so like, if I was going to do the sentimental one, it would probably be in Rock Retrust, only because um, you know that one there. A drummer I used to work with, and we used to love jamming the lipstick and leather, and we just would do it for hours. And uh, a lot of good memories around that album and, and that, but. Just from a straight old, you know, Y and T. Like when I look at their their whole catalog, I really have a tough call between uh, between Black Tiger and uh, and Mean Streak, and uh, it's it's almost like neck and neck. But 
I'll tell you, just the riff and everything on Mean Streak, it just it gets yeah. me every time. And I, I, if I was going to rank it as, the, I think that would probably be my favorite Y and T album be Mean Streak. Well, they don't have a bad album. They they don't. Um, you well, know, some maybe, people. I mean, down for the counts a little, yeah, but yeah, but that, that has that has some fantastic songs on it. Anything for Money is a brilliant song, and it's got a killer guitar solo on it. Yeah. And then, um, uh, and then even I mean even with I mean Earthshaker's got a little bit of uh, a little bit of too much of the production on it, but uh, still great album. A lot of people love that album. So, and what do you think of Ten? You a fan of that one? Yeah, I thought that was actually a pretty good album. It, I you know I didn't even uh, realize when you know, when it was coming out. It just kind of like came out of nowhere. Yeah, I I I'm, I was a big fan of that one as well. Do you remember when we had Jimmy DeGrasso on and we? Yep. We spoke a little bit about that, yep. um, about that record, and they were playing some of it live beforehand um, to see which songs it fit. But uh, I thought that was a heavier record than Contagious. It was le- less, definitely less commercial. It, it wasn't as polished. Yeah, yeah, and and like I said, um, it, it did have a heavier thing. And you think, you know, G- Jimmy would have been nailing that. So I mean, definitely he was. I, you know, there must have been more to that story there of, of kind of. Him not getting to do everything on there that he that he wanted to do, but because that's kind of like the perfect vehicle for him. So you know, is it just being the you know basically that uh, you know Mike Stone just being a freshly rehabbed dick or what? I don't know. Mm. Have you heard the unearthed uh, CDs that they brought out with the demos? They yeah. brought out two. Yeah. There's if you look through the liner notes on that, there must be at least ten songs, if not more, mm. from. The ten sessions that never made the record. There's a ton of them on both of them. Yeah. Um, so that'll tell you how prolific the band were. Sure. And it was just again the label had Guns and Roses. It had White Snake. Yeah. Well, the other thing with that one too, though, is I mean you're going to get more as you start to get into the digital recording age. You're going to have more than you would on tape, you know, either because tape just, you know, ended up getting reused or lost or it was expensive. And so you ended up having a lot more tracks when you started having the digital medium. It just it just made it easier to do, you know, make Mm. a lot of stuff. Well, it's it's the 10 record, I think, is nearly an hour. So Mm. you're you're definitely looking at the CD age there. Now, I have it on vinyl. It's like six tracks on each side. But Mm -hmm. some of the songs are six minutes long. Um it's it's a long record. It's it's more of a, a CD record than than a vinyl record. A lot of the bands at that stage were, were starting to, uh, you know, not do the ten song records right. anymore. They were doing sixty minutes, seventy five minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, 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 when you look back now on some of the albums that came out in the nineties that are seventy seventy five minutes, mm. and at the, at the time I remember thinking. This is great value at seventy five minutes, and now I can't get through listening to one of them. <laughs> like Metallica and te- all the Tesla albums ended up being seventy odd minutes long. Yeah, and I love I love Metallica and I love Tesla, but seventy minute albums, I'm like really, yeah. you know, I, I like fifty fifty five tops. Yeah. Um, I don't want fourteen songs. I want ten really really good ones. Yeah. But yeah, but you had a twelve-song Y&T record that uh, that I still like, and you know it was it was it was great to talk to Dave about it. His memory's pretty sharp about it too. Yeah, yeah, but definitely. I, I did catch him on a couple of the questions, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you guys. So you know, hope the guys this whets everybody's appetite for uh, for a great show next week. Is uh, yeah, like Richie said, you know, he really was. Uh, posing a lot of great questions to Dave, and a lot of stuff that Dave doesn't normally get asked. So you could tell that. Uh, he was really enjoying it. He was willing to go past the half hour with Richie and stuff. So something to really look forward to next week as uh, as we continue on through November is uh, going to be a, just a great interview with uh, with Dave Menachetti. Okay. Yeah. Sounds All right. So why don't we wrap up this week, and uh, we will uh, see everybody here again next week. So uh, that's it for me and... And me. That's right. Via Skype. And I uh, hope you guys have a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, as we always say, make sure you remember to focus on metal. Everything else is insignificant.
You're still here? It's over. Go home.